Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and this week for Wednesday, February 16th, 2022, we're going to be answering the following three questions we've been hearing from international educators this past week. First up, what is the future of international student mobility globally? Second, are you listening to your international students' experiences during this pandemic? And third, what do Saudi students want these days? We'll be taking a look at these three questions and more on today's SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. As we do each week, uh, we take our three questions that we ask during the roundup from our newsletter that comes out on Monday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern. Uh, if you'd like a free copy of that in your inbox, please go to smieconsulting.org slash subscribe. Enter your details after hitting the subscribe button, and we'll get you that newsletter fresh uh, each Monday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern. Uh, we take those uh, themes from the news stories that we see develop during the week, and we answer those larger questions here on the Roundup to kind of give a fresh perspective, uh, including some more in-depth analysis on what these topics might mean for us in international education. So we'll get started today, uh, as we do each week, with the first question. What is the future of international student mobility globally? Now, for those who have been in the business of international education for a while, you know that at some point, probably back in the 90s, America, the United States of America, had about a th just under a third of the total internationally mobile students studying in the United States. So uh, at that time, uh, the UK, Australia were, were our biggest competitors, uh, by, and those were by far the two closest to us. Since that time, uh, through uh, the um, post 9-11 uh, uh, collapse of, uh, of student flows from certain parts of the world, from the 2008 financial crisis that impacted the world as well, to uh, what we've experienced in the last two years with the global pandemic from, for COVID-19, we've seen ebbs and flows uh, in student mobility. But one thing has remained constant, is that the, the amount of students studying outside their home countries has grown significantly. Uh, the current data suggests that there are approximately 5 million students currently studying outside their home countries uh, at this point in time. Uh, back in the early 2000s, or just around 9-11, it was about 2.7 million. So the numbers have continually increased and doubled over the last 20 years, more than doubled over the last 20 years. So we're seeing now uh, kind of a, a look forward into the next 10 years or eight, 10 years or so to see what uh, future uh, trends might be looking like for international student mobility. And one thing I've always said um, when I brought up the example back in the 90s when the U.S. share of the global mobility pie was about a third, a little less than a third, probably around 29, 30%. Uh, there was a concern uh, voiced back then that our competitors, the U.K. and Australia, were getting better at their game and they were becoming more proactive. We saw uh, Australia, who had begun using agents in the late 80s, uh, that trend had accelerated. They'd become more proactive in expanding their reach 
beyond Southeast Asia, South and East Asia. You saw the UK uh, getting more sophisticated in its um, recruitment, whereas the US kind of was staying kind of consistent and, uh, and living off its reputation, if you will. Uh, you saw uh, certainly uh, a number of institutions had who had been recruiting internationally for some time where they'd be physically going uh, overseas, uh, had developed uh, strong connections with schools, counselors, uh, start to look at using agents to expand their footprint, uh, to have in-country representatives in places that they couldn't always get to. We saw the rise of Education USA in the mid-90s and early teens and, and how, how significant that became in U.S. institutions' outreach to students overseas. You saw the rise of study consortia. So there have been reactions to the our, our competition are getting more engaged globally. Uh, what's, uh, what's really driving this question today is what I've seen over the last 28 years in my, in my, my professional career in international education is that, yes, uh, the U.S. share of the globally mobile students has reduced over the years. Uh, we're probably at 20, 20%, 21% right now as opposed to 30% over the last uh, nearly 30 years of time uh, has, that have expanded. But our numbers, uh, with, with the exception of the COVID, uh, COVID years, which have uh, significantly put a dent in our overall numbers, have gone up significantly, more than doubled in that time as well. Uh, so we're, we see uh, that, yes, our share of the overall pie has gotten smaller, but uh, our, number of, our sheer number of students studying in the United States from overseas has expanded dramatically as well. And the future, of, in terms of where we're going from here in the next uh, few, few years, uh, is, is the, this question is really motivated by an article that came out in the Pi this past week uh, from a group called uh, Holon, and that's an interesting group I'd not heard before. Uh, it's a group called Holon IQ. Uh, they carried out a global estimate of the market uh, in bigger level detail than ever seen before, looking towards the next 10 years on a complete scale. And they are suggesting that by 2030, so in the next eight years, uh, the number of students studying outside their home countries is going to expand from 5 million, where we are about now, to 8 million. So that's, that's a significant increase. That's a 60% increase in students that will be studying outside their home countries in the next eight years. And that means that pie is continuing to grow. The international student mobility pie is getting larger, as it has been for the last 30 years more and more, and continues to go grow uh, since the 40s when uh, records started being kept with IIE Open Doors. So we can see that over the last 50 years, we've seen dramatic growth. Uh, we've seen slowdowns. We've seen accelerations. But it, in terms of the global mobility of international students, you've seen them starting to um, to expand maybe not as far in a, to as far flung destinations as the US Canada Australia UK and New Zealand but they are looking at options outside their home countries uh, in more perhaps regional hubs and regional hubs have been predicted for uh, for a number of years that uh, places like Singapore Indonesia Malaysia have been talked about as becoming regional hubs for universities uh, for student interest uh, to study outside 
their home countries. We've seen other countries like China uh, significantly ramp up their higher ed capacity, not only for uh, accepting their own students, but accepting specifically international students into their institutions. That has happened, and China has, has risen up the ranks and wasn't even on the radar 20 years ago as a top 20 destination for international students is now in the top five. They were threatening the UK for a while until COVID hit and their numbers have plummeted uh, and their reputation has been damaged in the, in, the, in the long term because they've refused to let students back in until very recently there's been whispers of that beginning to happen. But we've, we're seeing some real challenges um, that to the, uh, if you will, the hegemony of the top, uh, the top three, uh, the US, UK and Australia. You, you've seen Canada enter the mix. You've seen China enter the mix. You've seen other European destinations, France and, and in particular Germany, getting much more popular uh, because of their lower tuition rates for international students. So we've seen a lot of countries realize, oh, we need to be getting our acts together. You've seen India over the last year or two really put their foot forward. Uh, and it may take a little bit longer for them to develop because there's a lot more disorganization within India than, than perhaps in other countries like China uh, or the UK. Uh, but you see other major nations uh, who have traditionally been top senders of students abroad now looking at the, the results of what other countries have been able to do in attracting students. And now we're seeing uh, value in promoting their own countries as destinations for international students and having specific scholarships available. So there's a lot that's changed in terms of the pie because the number of competitors for those students has grown dramatically. Uh, and in addition to the, the hegemony of the top three, I mentioned US, UK and Australia, Canada has, has significantly grown and has put themselves forward as probably one of the most welcoming destinations for any immigrants, uh, student or uh, potential uh, worker, future citizen or permanent resident. So you see this report by Holon IQ looks at some of the longer term trends and really uh, shows uh, that the demand coming out of Asia, Africa, and Latin America are over the next 30 years is really going to underpin their view that there's a strong outlook ahead for continued growth. Uh, they even put a dollar amount on it, and they're saying uh, right now uh, the uh, current uh, current am amount of funding uh, that uh, that is predicted to grow uh, we're looking at a growth from uh, right around $200 billion pre-pandemic uh, U.S. dollars in terms of the total value of the international student mobility pie to $433 billion by the end of this decade, by 2030. So that there are going to be variations, obviously, depending on the length of the program, the credential, and the destination market. But certainly, uh, you see the number of competitors um, uh, that coming into the game for uh, trying to reach those international students has grown significantly over the last uh, last decade. And you, you see uh, right now they're saying 70% of global demand uh, for, uh, inter for, for higher education outside home countries is in Asia and Africa. Uh, and over half of the top 200 universities, 55% of the top 200 to 500 universities are in the US, UK, Canada, or Australia. So uh, that, um, that uh, shows you where students want to go to the top schools in the top 500. Uh, you're, over half of those are going to be in the US, UK, and Canada, and Australia. So uh, we see 
that uh, the capacity, and one of the reasons they're going to look outside of Asia and Africa, uh, those students in those regions for study, is because of capacity outside of potentially China, maybe India, if they get their act together. Uh, the capacity in those countries to continue to host students is limited. Uh, they haven't gone through a rapid expansion of their higher ed capacity in, in their institutions uh, as China has recently. Uh, you see in the U.S., uh, U.S. has as a percentage of its total higher ed enrollment, we're talking about less than 5%. Uh, right now are international students. So there's tremendous capacity to grow in the United States uh, international student populations. Uh, whereas in the U UK, they're already running 25 to 30%. Australia are running 30 to 35%. Uh, so Canada, similarly, are in the 20, 25% range. So there's really a, a threshold but past which Institutions in the top reaches of uh, top destinations won't be able to assume many more students unless they expand their higher ed capacity just because of public, public, public pushback. Who are you as institutions? Are you here to educate our own students first or are you here to educate overseas students first and uh, bring in the money that they have and, and how it gets pictured in the news and politically there are, are uh, very real threats to continue growth at some of the top schools that are already 25, 30, 40% international. Uh, certainly some Canadian uh, colleges and universities are running up against that. Certainly some that see dollar signs first and don't care about mix of uh, students and diversity and balance uh, and services provided. They've, they've run, out, run out of money. Uh, they've uh, gone bust uh, and they have been closed. Uh, they've been prohibited uh, to enroll future international students. Some uh, uh, Quebec uh, colleges owned by the same group uh, are now closing down because they... Um, we're really going through some fraudulent, fraudulent recruitment practices. Uh, so we, we see some real challenges to huge growth at certain, in certain schools and colleges in the, in, in the top markets. But uh, there are certainly in, in some countries a lot of institutions that don't have significant international populations that if they start early enough and plan effectively can significantly grow their populations and do so without damaging their overall reputations. And you see a lot of institutions uh, now, particularly in the U.S., uh, that's obviously the market I know best, that are beginning to show uh, an eagerness to explore. Uh, you, there are a number of co contributing factors to this. We talked about last week the demographic cliff that we're about to go off in the U.S. in the next three years, uh, that uh, with a drop in domestic high school graduates in the United States, that there will be a need to look uh, for uh, other sources of students to fill that need. Uh, fill that gap, and international students are going to be uh, one of the key target areas for growth. And we'll see how institutions, if they're smart and starting early enough, can put in place the foundations to really uh, attract the right kinds of students and have the services on campus to make those students feel a part of campus life and feel like they're going to be successful on your institutional campuses. So the future is certainly bright for international education. Uh, there will be continued growth uh, in uh, markets that the U.S. has traditionally done well in, uh, and uh, but there will be increased 
competition, and that's just a fact of life in international education these days. And the more uh, you're aware of who your competition are uh, around the world, uh, the better prepared you are to answer the kind of concerns for students that will be considering uh, not just your country and your institution, but colleges and universities in multiple countries uh, and multiple destinations that you might not have thought of. So how aware are you of the what's going on around you is going to be an important uh, component in your overall success moving forward. And uh, certainly that's something we, we help uh, institutions with here at SMIE Consulting and happy to talk with any of you who have uh, have some concerns or needs in that area. But that's enough for question one. Let's move on to question two. Are you listening to your international students' experiences? And this is a topic that uh, we've covered in the past in, in different different ways of looking at it. Uh, but this, this way we're talking about this today is in light of the pandemic. Uh, we it's always good to know if, and, and certainly have focus groups with students that are graduating, have, uh, have a new student orientation interviews with students when they still have that excitement of just having arrived and uh, going through orientation and being overwhelmed and but just really excited about everything uh, to capture that uh, and see how those two different groups uh, from that those students that have gone through the process and are about to graduate and go on into the wide world uh, how they feel about their experiences and then on the front end how your students you've just recruited feel about the institutions and where uh, perhaps there are some disconnects. Uh, and certainly from your, your recent or your soon-to-be graduates, certainly uh, this has been the last, last couple of years have just been uh, the most bizarre uh, for most international educators uh, in terms of their, wor they, in terms of their, uh, their workloads, in terms of their work-life work home balances, uh, in terms of where they do, their, do what they do, and how the kinds of issues that have come up uh, have been unprecedented in the last couple of years. And the schools that have, um, have come out of it well are ones that have been responsive to, to student needs. Uh, and your, if your current international students have, uh, there's been some poor, poor experiences or bad, uh, bad incidents that have happened on campus, uh, maybe there's been some, uh, some hate crimes or, or whatever can convince uh, against some of your East Asian students, whatever the case may be. Are you, have you been responsive? How did you respond as an institution to those concerns or to the issues that these students had? Uh, because that really will determine your long-term success. So the responsiveness to international student experiences is nothing new, but in particular, I'm talking here about responsiveness to the situation where over the last two years, you've had students that perhaps haven't been able to get home at all, um, that might have been on a nor in a norm under normal circumstances, been able to travel home for a summer or a winter break, uh, that have not been able to do so because of the pandemic. Uh, lar larger factors and, and forces involved uh, in, in travel and uh, safety and health, uh, health concerns than we've ever experienced in the U.S. in the, in the the last 50 years. So you, you, you're, this question is really getting at your students during the pandemic have undergone some significant shifts 
in their lives, uh, may have lost loved ones to, to the pandemic, may have not been able to travel for two plus years to their home countries, may have been stuck outside the United States for the last two years trying to get back in, but haven't been able to get visas, uh, that may have been studying online and, uh, and taking their classes synchronously with when you're offering them if you don't have an asynchronous option. Uh, but they, they now want to come back and that kind of perseverance needs to be rewarded. Uh, but have you been responsive to those students? Have you been able to meet their needs when they, when they have occurred? Um, those, all those kinds of issues that have, uh, that have popped up have really impacted uh, students' mental health. And that, that's clear uh, more than anything else, not just international students, but domestic students as well. Uh, the kind of experiences they've had in certain uh, parts of the U.S. when they might have been disconnected. Domestic students might have been disconnected from their normal friend set because they haven't been able to meet them in person for because of lockdown restrictions and all that for periods of time. Uh, just multiply that by 10 when you think about your international students, the kind of mental strain that they've been under, not just to do well in school and maintain satisfactory progress towards graduation, but the disconnect that they've they've been having from family uh, that they might normally have had, been able to have, that to disconnect from uh, normal life, uh, from uh, the opportunities to get out more, uh, and that have been significantly limited. So you see article after article, and I'll be putting links to three of them, one from Inted that shows um, a Chinese student's journey through the pandemic when she uh, was uh, initially left, uh, her, left the United States to go back to China uh, at the end of her degree, right as the pandemic was coming to, uh, was, was ramping up. And then her, ex her experience is now looking to come back to do a doctoral program. And uh, what's sh some of the factors she's considering in her, where she's going to go. You also see some other campuses, uh, other issues that are reflected um, where um, what, you, what you see in terms of uh, the, the support that supporting international students is uh, even more of a should be even more of a priority now uh, during the pandemic because of because of what's happened with the numbers and we all know the uh, the open doors numbers certainly reflected dramatic drops uh, in the last two years but the need for we go going back to mental health again the need for support and this is I think uh, in this day and age certainly 25 years ago we didn't talk about. Um, and a lot of cultures, even in the U.S., the, the, we started to hear talk. Uh, uh, it was it was becoming more acceptable to go seek help as as a student uh, if you weren't doing well in classes. Uh, you could get help for uh, for for something uh, that, something that you might be struggling with. Uh, this is when uh, diagnoses of ADHD and other. Um, learning disabilities were coming to the fore, IEPs were becoming uh, not intensive English programs, but individualized education programs were being designed and acceptable uh, in colleges and as proof of um, uh, disability when you were uh, when you were uh, applying for university entry. So, but the, um, for international students, culturally in most many countries around the world, uh, talking about issues, mental health issues wasn't isn't done. And so there are still some countries today when that's where that's not not really talked about uh, in public. But the reality of this pandemic is certainly reflected in the United States, but certainly in other countries as well. Hey, the, there's there's been some very real struggles that have damaged emotional health, uh, mental health of 
our students and how do we respond? And it's not just students, it's healthcare workers, it's frontline workers, that anyone that's lost a loved one during the pandemic uh, has had these kind of struggles. Uh, but it's, it's maybe more acceptable to talk about these, um, uh, about mental health issues and concerns and feelings and all of these things. And certainly on campus, there's, uh, there's never been a time more important than now to make sure that students are aware of what those services are. Um, most, all, all campuses have uh, counseling centers, uh, have, um, have mental health uh, professionals that could help uh, students with, with concerns. And some have even uh, been thinking about this internationally to uh, make it a more palatable uh, for them in before, even before the pandemic hit by combining uh, healthcare, uh, regular healthcare services, health center on campus and the counseling center in the same facility so that uh, the, that those issues can be addressed when they happen rather than uh, uh, if it's connected to a, a physical ailment. Uh, those things are often related. So we talk about these things in the U.S. Uh, often uh, for, to our domestic students, but for our international students, it can often be a harder conversation. So are, is your campus really equipped to handle this? And this is something that I think um, this University World News article, certainly that I'm, I'm posting a link to, as I do all the links to in the comments section for this Facebook Live event on uh, Facebook, the Facebook page for SMIE Consulting, uh, then this is something that um, institutions that le have learned this lesson uh, and have, have the services available certainly are in a much better position uh, to create that sense of belonging on campus, to create a sense of, hey, these resources are here for you and they can help you maintain your own mental health and can keep you on, on, in the, right, on the right path toward graduation and, and engaging you in a, in a very clear and uh, uh, accessible way which is, uh, again, what uh, in, in years past, these things might not have been talked about openly amongst international students, certainly by the parents, maybe not. But now uh, the realization is, hey, everybody's been impacted by this, and my son or daughter is studying overseas and needs some help, uh, needs to talk through some issues. I want them to get the support they need. And uh, that's something that I think parents realize, too. They're uh, that their worldviews have kind of been shaped a little bit by what's kind of gone on with the pandemic. And that's... Uh, Another another article I'll drop I'll share from um, uh, California from the Claremont Colleges their, their student uh, paper for the for the five Claremont Colleges uh, that uh, an international student uh, shares her her perspective that uh, that because of COVID nineteen travel restrictions uh, and inability to travel and meet and see family that's impacting mental health of, of students and that needs to be. Uh, uh, recognized by institutions and supported as much as possible. So there's there's increasing evidence that uh, these issues uh, are of, of mental health need to be addressed. And the only way you know that is if you're listening to what your current students are saying. So hopefully that that hits home this week more than more than most in terms of what uh, a focus needs to be for. Uh, for your ISSS offices, for your senior international officer that can lead a charge if it, if it hasn't already been done to make sure uh, international students are aware and have access to and uh, feel an, a sense of normalcy about this, that this is something that, hey, we know everybody struggled with the pandemic and we want you to know that we hear you, uh, that uh, 
that you've, you, you haven't been able to travel as much as you like. You, you've had uh, issues with uh, access and, uh, to uh, facilities and that type of thing, uh, classes uh, being online, and that, and that impacts your mental well-being. So well, let's hope that that, that situation gets, uh, gets addressed on more campuses in the coming weeks and months. Last question of the day. What do Saudi students want these days? Uh, we've gone through a, a fairly quiet period uh, with relationships with the kingdom uh, over the last probably seven years when uh, the King Abdullah Scholarship Program was uh, very much restructured and minimized in terms of the volume of students that were coming, um, coming to the United States uh, to study abroad uh, and other countries as well on full scholarships. That program has uh, significantly narrowed and has been replaced in a lot of ways by much more targeted and focused uh, programs uh, that are still government scholarship programs are called the Path to Excellence Scholarships. And if there's a few other smaller niche scholarships that are for particular industries that uh, Saudi Arabia is looking to develop in tourism, in, in space exploration, in, uh, in mining, and in other um, hospitality industries that are really, have really been ramping up as in terms of needs that the kingdom has. Uh, so we're seeing uh, the, the, the path to excellence scholarships and others like it are much more focused. Uh, smaller numbers instead of tens of thousands of students coming, there are now 500 here, 75 here, 100 here. Uh, that may give opportunities for institutions that are uh, looking to still uh, attract Saudi-sponsored students uh, in a more um, uh, targeted way. Uh, this will be an opportunity to uh, to really understand that, hey, yeah, the, though the volume isn't going to be as strong, you can still get a piece of this uh, Saudi Arabian uh, uh, funded scholarship student pool. Uh, there are some really interesting um, demographic information in Saudi Arabia. They have a huge youth population. The their total population of the country is about 35 million. There are more than 5 million right now, 15 to 24-year-olds, that are preparing for higher education. Uh, they don't all have uh, dreams of studying in Saudi Arabia, uh, and they might do that for their undergrad and then look to go overseas for a graduate degree. Some might be very willing to come right away. But you also see uh, some interesting trends beginning to, to pop up in Saudi Arabia that there are more... Um, more uh, self-funded students that are looking to study abroad. Uh, what is important that uh, though these particular path to excellence scholarships that uh, that they have the have already have their English proficiency and they're ready to go uh, without any further language or foundation study, that had been one of the hallmarks of the King Abdullah Scholarship Program. Most all of these students were coming in needing a year of English, if not more, before they could start their academic program. So that was a boon for English language programs, maybe not so much anymore. But these smaller path to excellence scholarships that are focused on particular industries and health sciences, tourism, hospitality, as, I, as we mentioned, uh, those are uh, re requiring those students to already have English language ability. So there's more of that happening in country. So uh, there are the being on the list is still a thing in Saudi Arabia that you you really do have uh, to have any hope of getting these uh, sponsored kids. Uh, but even now, uh, with there's uh, an increasing rise of self-funded students, uh, they still cannot study at institutions, even though they might be paying their own way, they can study wherever they want. But if they want to come back and work in uh, Saudi Arabia, they have to have a job 
uh, they have to have a degree from an institution that is on one of these uh, these approved lists. So that is still a thing, and working those relationships with the cultural missions in D.C. and for or in Northern Virginia for Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and other uh, other nations that have uh, sponsored student lists or of where they can go, uh, where those students can go, is important. And as we're seeing now for this group, a rising group of self-funded students from Saudi Arabia, they too need to have uh, uh, degrees from institutions. So they can't just go wherever they want. They need to pick schools that are still recognized uh, on the Saudi uh, Saudi list, on the second list here in the U.S. So that's uh, that's what we have for you today. Just understanding changes, subtle changes in markets can often, uh, if if you if you if you're not prepared, can lead to missed opportunities. Uh, but this is something that uh, as uh, as countries evolve, as funding dries up in one area, it leads to other opportunities uh, in others. So we'll, we're seeing some changes in Saudi that may give some uh, reason for optimism uh, for future recruitment efforts from that nation. So we'll talk more about these questions and more uh, in the coming weeks and months, to be sure. But for now, that's all we have from the Midweek Roundup, and we look forward to chatting with you in the weeks to come. Cheers.